who had arrested Jesus took him to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the teachers of the law and the elders had assembled. But Peter followed him at a distance, right up to the courtyard of the high priest. He entered and sat down with the guards to see the outcome. The chief priests and the whole Sanhedrin were looking for false evidence against Jesus so they could put him to death. But they did not find any, though many false witnesses came forward. Finally, two came forward and declared, This fellow said, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Then the high priest stood up and said to Jesus, Are you not going to answer? What is this testimony that these men are bringing against you? But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And the high priest tore his clothes and said, He has spoken blasphemy. Why do we need any more witnesses? Look, now you have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? He is worthy of death, they answered. Then they spit in his face and struck him with their fists. Others slapped him and said, Prophecy to us, Messiah. Who hit you? Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Then he went out to the gateway, where another servant girl saw him and said to the people there, This fellow was with Jesus of Nazareth. He denied it again with an oath. I don't know the man. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Then he began to call down curses and swore to them, I don't know the man. Immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, great to see you. Uh, this morning, great to be opening this passage of the Bible with you. My name's Jeff, I'm one of the pastors here at St. Matthew's. 
One of the first things that happened to me when I turned 18 is I got a letter in the mail and I got called up to jury duty. Uh, so I uh, got to take three days off uni and go and sit on a fraud trial. And uh, the, the first thing you do as a jury is you kind of go into a room by yourselves and you have to elect a foreman. And so I, I'm a fresh-faced 18-year-old and I was a young-looking 18-year-old and, uh, but no one would be the foreman. Uh, no one was willing to do it. So in the end, uh, I ended up being uh, the foreman who has to <coughs> deliver the verdict. There were three charges. One, the judge threw out because of lack of evidence. Uh, one, we agreed that he was not guilty. And on the last one, we found him guilty. When I gave the verdict, I'd stand up, and I still remember uh, the moment. Uh, the man uh, didn't react at all. He didn't cry, he didn't shout, uh, he just looked straight ahead. And I sometimes think back to that and wonder uh, what he was feeling at that moment. How does it feel uh, to be told that you're guilty? when whatever it is that you've done crystallises into its consequences. How do you feel at that moment? What, what is going through his mind? Uh, being conv convicted of fraud isn't a common experience, and yet somehow I think we know something of what that is like. Uh, the, that moment when you have to face up to the reality of something that you've done, or whether that's just the consequence of uh, not doing the study that you know you needed to do, uh, or facing up to the lie that you've told, which is now coming out. Uh, we might not have failed against the laws of Australia, and yet often we fail against our own standards. Uh, today we encounter the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin. And what we're going to find is the true judge endures false trial for failed people. The true judge endures false trial for failed people. First we're going to look at the trial of Jesus and then woven into that story is the trial of Peter. And we're going to look at those two things together. Uh, the trial of Jesus is... Uh, more like the scene of a midnight lynching than an actual trial. The Jewish leaders have got together, uh, not at the council building, but at Caiaphas's house in the middle of the night because this is their chance to get rid of Jesus. And make no mistake, this is a false trial. They go searching for false evidence, we're told, uh, which seems a little odd, like false evidence, why don't you just make it up? Isn't that how you do it? Uh, but by Jewish law... Uh, you needed at least two witnesses uh, for testimony to be valid. And so they could find people willing to lie, they just couldn't find two people in the same lie. And so it goes on and on. And you can imagine how frustrating it would have been for the, for the Sanhedrin, for the council, like, oh, verse 60, many false witnesses come forward, long into the night. It's, kind of, it's just fast at this point, isn't it? It's like one of those reality TV courtrooms like Judge Judy or something, where 
It's all concocted. Eventually, they find two witnesses with the same testimony. This fellow said, I am able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. Which seems like a fairly innocuous thing to say, but it's a little bit like making a bomb joke at the airport. They, they take that very seriously. That's not a, a small thing to mention. Uh, and it cuts to the heart of the issue here. The issue is who's in charge. Because to say that about the temple, for Jesus to say that, is to say, I'm in charge of the temple. And the Jewish leaders did not like that at all. And so they say, explain yourself, Jesus. What are you going to say to that charge? But verse 63, Jesus remained silent. Now that seems like just an incidental detail, uh, but Matthew doesn't write like that. Uh, that's on purpose. This is a, he's, he's throwing back to something in the Old Testament, to Isaiah 53, verse 7. Um, here's what it says on the screen. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Now, why is that important? Why is it important that just like this Old Testament prophecy in Isaiah, Jesus was silent? Well, because what Isaiah 53 tells us is that this innocent suffering is to take the punishment for the people. So look at the verse before this one. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Uh, that's the Old Testament's poetic way of describing sin. We go our way and not God's way. We think that we know better. And so we, we kind of take the place of God and say, we'll do it. And so we're like sheep, wandering off, lost, helpless. That's the picture. We're guilty, but we know that Jesus is innocent of these false charges. And Jesus being silent is is to tell us that the guilt that he is wearing is being laid on him. It is the guilt of others. The true judge endures false trial for failed people. That's the great irony of this moment, the way that uh, Jesus is there as the true judge and yet he faces trial. He is the one with all authority in heaven and earth and yet he is convicted by human authorities. And there's this irony in the way that his true identity is used against him as evidence. It's, it's perverse. Verse 63, the high priest says, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. And the high priest thinks that if, if you're the Messiah, then you're guilty. But if he's the Messiah the high priest ought to be worshipping him. See the irony of that. They think it's blasphemy for Jesus to claim to be God's king. And yet he is. And in a way, 
He is kind of far beyond even what they imagine. Look at Jesus' response. Uh, verse 63, the high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. Verse 64, you have said so, Jesus replied. It's like he's saying, that's right, but you've got your ideas about what that means. Uh, but I say to you, here's the truth, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. He says, that's who I am. That's the kind of Messiah I am. I am God's eternal King. And Jesus here is being plain and direct, simple and honest. He says who he is and he says what authority he holds. That, that description, uh, sitting at God's right hand in the cloud, that means that he is God's heavenly king with God's power, with God's authority to rule and to judge. And so Jesus is himself on trial and yet he is the judge, the true judge. The true judge endures false trial for failed people. And so the Jewish leaders think he's worthy of death. A room full of dozens of the most powerful uh, religious men in Jerusalem crowd in to hit him and spit on him. Meanwhile, Peter is out in the courtyard. Probably, if, even if he couldn't see everything that's going on, uh, I, I bet he could sense which way things were going. Uh, as the night wore on and as the shouts of abuse started to rise. And so we come to this next episode, the trial of Peter. And this trial is very different. Uh, it's a tragedy in three parts. Part one begins in the courtyard. Have a look with me at verse 69. Now Peter was sitting out in the courtyard and a servant girl came to him. You also were with Jesus of Galilee, she said. But he denied it before them all. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about, he said. Uh, now the trial isn't by Caiaphas, the high priest. It's not before the council. Uh, the interrogation is led by a servant girl. Uh, a little girl with no position, no authority. Uh, she just connects Peter to Jesus. And he avoids it. I, I, don't, I don't know. I, what? Uh, I do not recall that conversation. It's like a politician at a Senate inquiry. Uh, just, except sadder, you know? Part 2, verse 71. He slinks back to the gateway for a quick escape and another servant girl notices him. This fellow... But now he doesn't just evade the question. Uh, he drops Jesus. He says, I, I don't know the man. It's kind of the way that uh, Hollywood movie studios drop uh, actors once they've been involved in some scandal. They just cut them from movies entirely, reshoot the thing. But Jesus has done nothing wrong. But still, he's toxic. Peter cannot be associated with him. 
Part 3, verse 73. After a little while, those standing there went up to Peter and said, Surely you are one of them. Your accent gives you away. Kind of woven into this story is this sense of elitism, almost like a kind of racism within Israel, because uh, Jesus is named as being from Galilee, uh, from Nazareth, these insignificant places to the north. And now that Peter's had to speak, uh, they can tell by his accent that he's one of them, one of those bogans, one of those useless people. And he's been bold in getting as close as he has, but now the accusations have come and they've got bigger and stronger and he has stepped away further and further until verse 74, just this awful moment. He began to call down curses and swore to them, I don't know the man. Not just avoiding it, not just denying it, but cursing Jesus, the one that he knew to be the Messiah, the son of the living God. But that moment, the darkness, the fire in the courtyard, the yelling from inside the house, and the fear of being found out, and he calls down curses on his Lord and God. And so verse 74, it all floods back to him. Uh, immediately a rooster crowed. Then Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken. Before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. And he went outside and wept bitterly. Inside, they're mocking Jesus. Prophesy to us, who hit you? And outside, Jesus' prophecy is coming true. He is the true judge. He is who he says he is. The tragedy isn't just that Peter couldn't stick with Jesus. The tragedy is that Peter couldn't even meet his own standards. This is what he said. Just that night he said, even if I have to die with you, I will never disown you. No, you have failed, Peter. He curses him and walks away. And he weeps. Of course he weeps. It's a, this is such a dark moment in the Gospel. He weeps bitterly. Just at the shame of failing his own standards, his own words, his own promises. This story is a, a heavy one. It's, it's a powerful moment. And I think that we feel it because we feel echoes of that in our own lives. That we fail to meet our own standards, let alone God's standards. We fail to meet our own standards. Uh, we tell people that we'll help them and we don't follow through. Uh, we want to be more generous and yet when we look at our budget, our our lives, they continue to be self-indulgent. Uh, we pray and uh, tell God that we'll make uh, meeting with his people a priority and uh, we'll just, as long as we get through these exams and next semester we'll, we'll take it seriously, but then we get to next semester and the pressure of uni trips us up again. 
and we tell ourselves that we're going to try and love that person uh, that we find difficult, annoying, uh, but then we quickly cut them out again. And we want to be uh, honest and good with our words and we say to God that that's what we're going to do and yet uh, quickly our words burst forth in anger and put-downs. And maybe other people don't notice these things, right? But we know. Because they're not other people's standards, they're our standards. They're things that we wanted to do, and yet we fail. We fail even our own standards of loving God and loving others. Not even to mention God's standards, what He expects of His creatures. Part of the problem is that Peter's story is too close to home. If this was the trial of Jeff instead of the trial of Peter, the outcome would be the same. It would just take a servant girl. But I think these two trials are placed side by side on purpose. They're placed next to each other, not to make us feel bad, but to tell us about the purpose of the trial of Jesus to tell us about the purpose of Jesus' death for us. The true judge faces false trial for failed people. That's why Peter's trial is placed next to Jesus' trial. His death takes our guilt. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And so if that's true, if that is true, that the true judge endures false trial for failed people like you and me, then what does that mean for us? Well, I think that means, uh, we'll just say one thing, one thing that it means. It means that we can lay our shame at Jesus' feet. We can lay our shame at Jesus' feet. Uh, That is the mark of this passage Peter's shame, it is the enduring mark of this passage as you think back to it. Him weeping bitterly, deeply ashamed at what he's done. But with no way to put it right. But inside, inside the house, Jesus is facing dishonour and shame for him. Peter's guilt laid on Jesus. And if that's true for him, it is true for you and me as well. We can lay our shame at Jesus' feet. Are there things that you're ashamed of in your life, in your relationships, in the way that you've treated God? There must be, right? But Jesus takes the shame of failing God's standards. He takes that shame. He takes the shame of failing our own standards. Even though he is the true judge, he faces false trial for us. And if you feel ashamed of things that you have done or failed to do, uh, I'm going to pray next. I'm going to pray and give us an opportunity to lay that shame at Jesus' feet. Because in his trial, he receives a guilty verdict that he doesn't deserve. 
And even though he holds all authority to judge, he submits to being judged to take away our guilt. When I gave the jury's verdict on our fraud case, I don't know what that man was feeling. I don't know if he had a family that he was thinking about. Uh, I don't know uh, what he uh, thought about the future. But I guess he felt ashamed. But if he knew the gospel, if he knew the gospel, if he knew that he could lay that shame at Jesus' feet, that would be wonderful. He could be confident that Jesus took his guilt away and he could stand tall knowing that Jesus would look at him and say, not guilty, not guilty, brother. Let's pray. Father God, we confess that we have failed to love you with our whole heart. Uh, we know we've even failed to meet our own standards. We acknowledge that there is much for us to feel ashamed of, even beyond what we know. But we thank you. Thank you for sending Jesus to take our guilt and shame. Please help us to know and truly feel that freedom from shame that you have won for us. Please help us to lay our shame at Jesus' feet and to trust him for our forgiveness and life. We pray this in his mighty name. Amen.